Good morning. Let's start with a short prayer. God in heaven, come visit us this, this hour of worship, and especially in this sermon. Help us to be freed by your grace from the deceitfulness of wealth and from the deceitfulness of troubles that come into our life. Amen. Amen. So, what are your thoughts full of today? These days, over the last week or so, when you get a quiet moment and you're away from anyone, maybe someone's saying, I don't have a quiet moment. What, are you, what, are, what fills your mind and your thoughts? What do you think about the most? What's your default document in your brain that you get consumed with? That's good. Did you notice in my prayer, I, I prayed that God would free us from the deceitfulness of wealth and the deceitfulness of trouble. Do you know where that comes from? The parable that Jesus told of the parable of the sower that sows the word of God and that there's one that the seed falls among thorns and what chokes out the word that was once received with joy is a full life that's got lots of good going on, chokes out the word. And then a full life that has a lot of bad going on can choke out the word. Jesus was talking about, in that part of that parable, about believers getting choked out of the, the one treasure, the peace that they have, the, the wonders of God. Is it? We're in Christmas, so we're going to be talking about Mary and Joseph and boy Jesus, 12-year-old Jesus, right after his, in our Bible, right after his birth it comes. Isn't a wonder to you that Mary and Joseph could also have the troubles or the wealth of their life choke out the actual word of God that came through the angel Gabriel to them before they had the baby? That's what happened. When Jesus was 12 years old, the event was they went down to Jerusalem for the Passover. And we're going to read that in just a minute. You know what the Passover is? It's the, it's the Christmas of the Jewish calendar, really. It's the highest time of year. It's in the spring. But even today, with there being three great feasts in Judaism, it's the Passover that's the greatest. And it starts with the Seder meal, the unleavened bread, the bitter herbs, the wine and the water, and then it has a seven-day feast that follows. And in, in Jews today that are Orthodox and are able will try to get to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover even today. But in Jesus' day, all the people that lived in the region, if they could, they would, and they did. And Mary and Joseph were very devout, even though they were poor. And they went down to Jerusalem from Galilee, which was a three-day walk at the least. And they weren't the only ones. There were thousands, 120,000 historians say, in Jesus' day would go down to Jerusalem, which normally only had 12,000 people in it. So they were in crowds. Picture yourself, some of you leave third quarter of football games to get to your car and get out of the parking lot. Picture yourself walking with 120,000 people into Jerusalem and out of it. How some families maybe even would just say, What's, why bother with this? But they bothered, and they went, and they did it faithfully and lovingly and loyally. And they, they had to buy sacrificial animals for a poor couple's probably two doves. 
not a lamb. They had to make arrangements on where they were going to stay, who they were going to stay with, what they were going to eat while they were there, how they would survive for a week there. And then getting home and getting back to their lives. Fullness. You see what I'm saying? Their hearts and minds are full with the celebrations, just like yours are at Christmas. And we stand up here and we preach every Christmas. Make sure you focus on the Christ child and not on the fullness of the celebration. But something went terribly wrong that even erased all the fullness of Passover for Mary and Joseph. They lost Jesus. <laughs> they lost him. They thought he was in the crowd with the family, and so they, they didn't watch for him all day as they walked out of town to go back home that first day travel. So let's read what happened. Every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover, and when he was 12 years old, they went up to the festival according to the custom. After the festival was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. Then they began looking for him among the relatives and friends. And when they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. Okay, does it make any of you wonder how they could like not notice that he was gone? Probably for a few of you that feel that way, it's because you're supercharged by our news stories that bring every single lost child into your home and the Amber Alerts on our highways. But they didn't have that. And they also had lots of family and friends. And they also were raising Jesus, and he also wasn't four. He was 12, and he had been a good boy and always where he was supposed to be, and they had learned for a long time they didn't have to worry about him. I remember my mother telling a story one time, going grocery shopping with her friends. They had four kids. She had six, and not all the kids were with them, but most of them were, and they were in this big grocery store. And she said, I was way back in the back of the store, and I heard over the loudspeaker it said, would the mother of a little boy who doesn't know his name, who's wearing like red pants and a green shirt, please come to the front because he's up here and he's crying. And she's looked to her friend and said, who in the world would lose their kid in a store like this? And then she realized there's one missing and she went, forgot what he was wearing and she went up there and there I was. <laughs> red pants, green shirt, lost and crying. Yeah, it's easy to judge, but it happens, doesn't it? So Mary and Joseph were being normal parents, and they lost track of Jesus. Jesus was not being a normal Jesus or a normal child, though. Twelve years old, and he stayed back in Jerusalem. Now, they've walked for a whole day, right? So they're a day out. You don't just grab a subway or a train or a car and bus and come right back. They had another whole day to get back. Maybe they went it all, all night, we don't know, but they had a long trip back. Imagine how long that is. Have you ever lost a child for a little while? Oh my goodness, it'll... I have another story about losing a child. Our oldest, who's here today, Donovan, we, we were at Camp Croy. It's a camp, 300-acre camp on a little lake up in uh, west, uh, western Wisconsin. 
And we were there because I worked there for the summer. So we lived there. And he was three, and Seth was well, a year and a half, and, or a little over a year old. And, and, and we enjoyed that camp. People came and went every three or four days. One family came who had lost a child and who had drowned up in the Boundary Waters just a couple months earlier. And they came to the camp and told us their story. And so that was ripe in our minds. And so they left. Another group came and left. Another group came and left. And then the Hartwig clan came, which includes Pastor Lightning's family. So little Danny must have been Donovan's age. How old are you, Dan? 31, 32? Where are you? Okay. Donovan's 31. We lost him. We live on a lake. Someone's kid had just drowned in the Boundary Waters. He was three. We couldn't find him anywhere. That's the sickest feeling for a, as a parent, isn't it? It just rips your heart out. It's fear and blame. And didn't you keep an eye on him? Didn't you keep? I thought he was with you. And I, we were running around camp, Donovan, Donovan. And I ran down to the pier and ran out on the pier and just stared at the water. Oh, God, please don't let him be out there. Came back up to the lodge and Dan's brothers playing the violin. They learned violin very early in the Lightning family. And there's Donovan's dad watching. Oh, my goodness. I wanted to kill him and hug him all at the same time. You know that feeling if you've ever lost a child. You know what Mary and Joseph felt. And they had to go through it for a really long time. All the way back. And then they looked for him. So they were a day out, day back, and looked for him for a whole day. That's the most conservative estimate of how the three days went. It could have been that they came back and had to look for three days. But... On the third day, they found him in the temple. Hmm. The playground? The marketplace? The arcade? I don't know. After three days, they found him in the temple court, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. So this is where they found Jesus, at the temple. The temple was not a very small place. It still isn't. Some of you have traveled there. And you can see kind of where the, the original mount was by where the present temple mount is. Any guess? I've told you before when I've been standing up here, but any guess on how big the temple mount is where he was sitting in the courts talking to teachers? This land that this church is on, if you go to the creek over there and to the fence over there and the street in the back then, is only five and a quarter acres. The Temple Mount is 36 acres. So that's about the size of a football stadium. When it has had pillars and courts and, 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 and porches all the way around it. And that's where the teachers were. And also the pe people selling sacrificial animals and doing the money changing. It was crowded. Picture a football stadium on the perimeter when you leave and everybody leaves at the same time. 100,000 people at the Passover. So it's, when it says they looked for him and they found him on the third day, it was crowded. It could be like Sleepless in Seattle, that movie where you just kept missing each other, right? And they, they found, finally found him. And there he was, doing not what a 12-year-old boy does who's distracted by his own desires, but a, what a 12-year-old boy does when he's distracted by God the Father's desires. Let's read. 
When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me? He asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying. What would you have said to Jesus? I think Mary's showing quite a bit of restraint, don't you? (laughs) Why did you treat us this way? It dawned on her as soon as she saw him that he was not being held back against his will. Nobody had nabbed him. This was entirely his volition that made him sit there doing this. And he never told them that's what he was going to do. Remember what you've told your kids? You could at least tell me where you are and when you're going to be home. Decency, Jesus, would you have told us, why did you do this to us? It was in those same temple courts when he was eight days old that an old man had picked Jesus up in his arms and said, this one is here for the light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of the people Israel, and he will reveal the thoughts of people's hearts. And he looked at Mary square in the eye in the very same court. I wonder if it was on the same tile. And he said, a sword will pierce through your own soul. What was he telling Mary, Simeon, the old man? Your life is in total service. When you said, when the angel came to you, behold the handmaiden of the Lord, the servant of the Lord, your life is in total service to God to raise God as a savior for the planet. And a sword will pierce through your own soul, and the knife blade was starting to hurt. Jesus would go with the Father's will, and even knowing that it would hurt his parents, would not tell them. Instead, he would stay back and start visiting. He wasn't being distracted. He was in control, and it would hurt them. And it did. And he wasn't wrong when it hurt them. And he didn't have to answer why. Just like God doesn't have to answer why he lets hurt or trouble come into your life. But it's always him working for the good of those who love him who have been called according to his service, to his purpose. God didn't have to tell her why, even if he was a 12-year-old boy. And he didn't say why. He just said, why didn't you assume when you didn't find me among the relatives that I'd be here doing the Father's work and quietly, without anxiety, walk back and find me and then we would go back home together. Why, why are you upset? Not, not why did you have to come back, but why are you all upset? He's telling them again that they haven't factored in the facts. Uh, remember, Joseph's not the father. Remember the angels? Remember I've been your perfect son for 12 years? Remember I'm God? That's what happens in life, though, to all of us. We still, the winds and the waves, they still freak us out. And you can be Mary and Joseph, the mother of God, and still the normal fears of this life can freak you out about even Jesus. And you cannot factor in by faith what you already knew to be true. God's in control. And he's a good God. 
And he's got his boy right where he wants him. You can let go. You get out of the driver's seat. You think you're in there. You know, I've, I, I wish I had a dollar for every time a Christian has told me, my biggest problem I've discovered is that I just want to be in control. Now, after years of my own battle with that and my own theological contemplation, I want to say, duh. That's all of our problem. That's what happened at the tree. Ah, Mary, Eve says, it's got good for food. Wise, it'll make me wise. I'm in control. God wants me not to be in control, and I need to be in control, and the devil's convinced me of that. So she didn't say the devil. She didn't know that, but she took control. That's all of our problem, right? And God, the son, 12 years old, says, Mother, you're not in the driver's seat. God, the father is, and God's saying that to us today, too. You're not ever in the driver's seat. And you don't have to be. Because the gracious God is in control of the life that you live. Just like Mary and Joseph. So you can let go. Well, here we go. Let's go to the next verse. They went down to Nazareth. He went with them and was obedient to them. For his mother treasured, and his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature in the favor with God and man. There's a lot there. I'm not going to talk about all of it. The, the, one, the one thing I want to focus on, though, was Mary treasuring up all these things in her heart. There's a couple of places where Luke in his gospel tells us this. Mary treasured all these things in her heart. Do you remember the other one? It's when she's had that baby in the, and put him in the manger, and the shepherds show up. And they go, we were out in the field and the angels told us to come look for your baby. That's why we're here in invading your, your birthing room. And it says, she treasured up all this in her heart. You know, I could tell you the story about losing Donovan just like that because it's been treasured up in my heart. I've told it many times and it was so emotional and deep. It left a, a deep rut there for a dad. You, could, you have those too. But I, it, but I want to tell you about Mary. Is it's, not, it's not just that she lost Jesus. It's what he said that she treasured. He said, did you not know that I would be in my father's house? Here's the point that I'm making. Emotional experiences are just that. Fearful experiences and troubles and problems are just that. They're part of living in a, in a fallen world. But God's Word comes in and it reframes the events of our lives like it did for Mary. God's Word came out of God the Word and said, didn't you know I'd be in my father's house? You had nothing to worry about. And suddenly she reframed the entire event. God did not do something to me. He did something for me. But I was in the driver's seat, so therefore I thought it was happening to me. But he did this for me. And this is my son is really God, and I really can let go. And she treasured all of that. And it was part of her spiritual journey, her spiritual development, her spiritual growth. So much so that when Luke, who never was with the 12 apostles, wrote his gospel and investigated, people were telling her that Mary was telling them that at these moments she had ahas and she treasured these things in her heart. How else would anybody know? Isn't that amazing? 
You know, my concern is not Mary, though. Now it's you and me that we really treasure these stories. Because I know you came in here with a load of thoughts. You've got family and jobs and concerns and dreams and hopes and disappointments and worries. And you've got all of that stuff, just like I do. It might be about your health. It might be about your wealth or lack of it. It might be about our church and what struggles you perceive we have. It might be about your government. It might be about your sister or your brother or the spiritual welfare of your grandkids or your kids. You've got loneliness and grief and worries and troubles and there are a load of thoughts that you have. But you've got to have room in your heart to treasure what you just saw, what you just experienced. That 12-year-old boy, that story that Luke took time to, inspired by the Holy Spirit, to write it down, doesn't want, it, doesn't want a story like that just to be a story. It's something he wants to teach you how to treasure it. So when you come into this building and you get out off the street, you leave that load of thoughts in the trunk of your car, in the back of your truck, and you come in here and you let God give you stuff you can treasure that's not going to fade away. Because, frankly, most of the stuff that we stack up in our minds and hearts is just part of this temporary, transitory life. And it really doesn't mean near as much as you and I think it does. But this, Jesus, means everything. And that's what he was sitting there talking to those guys about. They were the men, the teachers of Israel. They had the Word of God. They had the treasures the Old Testament, the treasures of God. Were, I'm standing up here right now talking about a passage from the New Testament. They only had the Old Testament while the New Testament was being lived out in front of them. They were the people of the book of God, and they had learned to treasure God's word above their experiences, at least some of them. And there's Jesus doing that perfectly, but at the age of 12. Most kids, when they were going through bar mitzvah, you probably had to force them to learn. But not Jesus. He is like plugged in 110%. And he has been plugged in so long and so astute that he's asking questions they've never heard a kid ask. And they're asking him questions that they took them till they were 40 to figure out. And he's got it. He understands it. And they were astonished at it. And you and I are supposed to watch that and treasure that. What do you mean we're supposed to treasure it? That man, that boy, was perfect. And when you say you believe in him, you're saying that you believe his perfection covers your distracted life. When he did that, that day and every week or week before or after that, he did it. Because you have not done it. You can be the greatest preacher in the world and you live 95%, I estimate, a distracted life from what you preach. <laughs> Every single one of us lives in the guilt of being distracted by the deceitfulness of this transitory life. And he did not. And God the Father says, if you'll put your trust in my son... That perfect life covers yours. It's a replacement. You know, some of you that are car owners, you've had this feeling. 
you, you stayed with a car a really long time, and it's like an old friend, right? And the repair bills get more frequent, and they get bigger. And finally, the mechanic looks at you and says what you don't want to hear. I really think you ought to just get rid of this car because the cost of fixing it really outweighs the cost of ownership. And then you got a new car. And the relief of having a car with not all those problems brought you great joy. That's an illustration of trading in your life for Christ's. You know, you can sit around for the next few days mulling over how you've fallen short on living a good life for God, or you can just trade it in and take Jesus. You don't have to sort through it anymore. You don't have to fix it. It's fixed. He did it for you. He's God the Savior. Isn't that the coolest thing? Isn't that the neatest thing to treasure so you don't sit around and wonder if the gospel really includes you? It does. He lived a perfect life in your place. One of my pastor friends told me one time, he had these three or four confirmation students. They came to class, and there was this one little girl that was always not doing her work. And she came, and you know, there's memory work, and there's some homework to do in the worksheet. She had the worksheet half completed, and she didn't have the memory passages memorized. And he said, you had a whole week to do this. You knew about it. I reminded you and your parents, and you didn't get it done. What's he doing? Law, law, law. And he says to her, what, what, do, you, what, do, you, um, what do you have to say for yourself? And she just said, I don't know. I just messed up. I'm so sorry. Started crying. He said, I'm going to tell you that you did your work perfectly and you get an A plus and your memory work is excellent. And that's what I'm going to put in, in my little grade book. Why? He said, because Jesus did it all for you. He let it go. Jesus did it for you. It was an illustration for her of the freedom of having Christ who is our righteousness and our peace. And as much as he's our peace, the other thing I want you to treasure is that he's also your example. Jesus is your example. He's, he's, the, re, he's the purpose and he shows you the purpose of life just by the way he lived it. Yeah, his dad was a carpenter. Yeah, he learned a trade. But he was only here for 33 years and he lived on a mission. Yeah, you might be an engineer, you might be a doctor, you might be a preacher, you might be a nurse, or many other things. But you're only here for a really short time. What's your purpose? Your purpose, above all of those, is to make God the Father, and God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit your number one priority. And as long as you think some other purpose is bigger than that, you're going to be a distracted, lost person, even if you're claiming the faith in Jesus Christ. And your life's not really going to make a whole lot of sense because you're, you're going to tag on to earthly things. Even preachers do this, like the success of their church. You'll tag on to earthly things, values so important that you'll get up and down and all mixed up. And why is God doing this? Not recognizing that it all has to do with Acts 17, the search for God. And the salvation and the peace that he brings in his son, Jesus Christ. And all of those things that you think are, you're supposed to find meaning in the outcome are actually a, a journey to the outcome of faith and eternal life 
and having it through Jesus Christ and maintaining that in your devotional life and growing in, in wisdom and the peace, hope, faith that we have. And Jesus wouldn't let even his parents or running to find them to tell them he was staying back in Jerusalem, keep him from his devotional life. What would you let keep you from your devotional life? Or the activity that you would want to spend to be close to God. God comes to you privately in his word. He comes to you corporately when we're together. He comes to you in smaller groups like little Bible studies or one-on-one. Or you engaging in Bible study through someone on the internet. But God wants you to be in his word and not let anything keep you from it. I'm thinking of, I'm closing and thinking of two stories one is, uh, let, recently I've been on an online Bible class helping learn how to teach online worldwide. And, and there were three people this one afternoon on the class, and one was a lady named Anna. And Anna is a, about a I, I don't know her age, but I'd say, judging by what I'm hearing about the family, 35, 40-year-old woman that lives in England, but she's originally from North Africa. She believes in Jesus. Her husband does not. Neither does her son. But she has another son that does. And she purposed that she's going to squeeze in Bible study. And she found this Bible study that our church is putting out on the internet. Not this local church, but our church body. And she signed up for it. And when I signed into the class, we, the, the teacher asked, where is everybody? And Anna said, I'm commuting to work on a commuter train in London. She's squeezing it in. Nobody's going to stop her. She's going to have a devotional life. No matter what. That's cool. That's an example. Another one is because I felt like God was calling me to train to be a pastor in this church body. And I'm a Texas boy. And I married a Texas girl out of Dallas, Mary. We moved all the way up to Minnesota, which is like Siberia to us. And then we moved over to Milwaukee, which is like Moscow to us. And we lived up there, and it was both crazy to her parents who had very shallow church roots and childlike faith. And we had a, a prank caller back before cell phones who knew Mary's name and scared us to death. So we changed our number and got an unlisted number. But being blonde, not Mary, we never told our parents for about a week. So they can't reach us. So they call our number, and it says the number's been disconnected and there's no forwarding number because we wanted the prank caller to get, a, get the drift, right? We get a letter in the mail from Mary's mom. There is, a, there is a wonderful seminary in Dallas, Texas. Why are you up in Milwaukee and what happened to your phone? Could you not pay the phone bill? Here's a $100 check. <laughs> well, I'm in that seminary because it's our faith and our teaching that we believe is biblical. And so I, I got a, a faith reason, right? So, of course, we called and apologized. And, and I, was the, you know, I, I was the reason we hadn't taken care of that, our business. But my thought is nothing would stop us, no family member on either side, from going off to study the Word, to get into the work of the Lord, even though it cost us something. And we had to sometimes talk and explain what we were doing a little bit better than we had before. You get what I'm talking about, about your life, though? This isn't about my life. If you put God first, you should expect to have to defend that. You're going to have to explain it to some people. You're going to have to say, yeah, I'm going to church New Year's Eve at 7. That's a commercial. You're going to have to. 
You're going to have to say why it's important to you at times. If not, Jesus said you don't have any salt in yourselves. He said have salt and light. Make God number one. Make your devotional life priority. Stand on what you believe. Stand on what the Bible has taught you. Live the gospel and defend your need to be immersed in the word of God. And don't be embarrassed. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? This is Jesus, not the boy, but the man. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Doesn't that sound like a 32-year-old Jesus telling what the 12-year-old Jesus told his mom? But you know what? He's not telling her. He's telling you and me. God has saved our souls. Let's ponder that and treasure that and make that the most important part of our journey. And let's, in 2019, be rich in devotional life unashamedly. Amen.